Okay. Because you've got an interesting approach or an interesting way of talking about it. Okay. So you're talking about two different modes of practice. One is very open and the other one is more focused and you're talking about it. Go ahead about the breath. Yeah, so at sometimes when practicing Anapanasati, it feels like uh, when it's this much more kind of open mode of practice, it feels like the breath is always there. I'm always with it, but it is 20% of what's there. Um, and I'm and I'm with body and feelings and thoughts, and those things are are a big are 80% of what's going on. I'm not being dragged away by them. Like there's there's a kind of like steadiness and mindfulness. Um, but it, it, this is, yeah, what I'm referring to as the kind of open mode of, of practice. And then there seems to be a much more focused mode of practice where straight from the beginning of the sit, the breath is taking up a lot more of my kind of bandwidth. And it's like the breath is, is 80, 90% of, of, of that bandwidth and the other parts of the, the other emphases within the Anapanasati 16 step structure are like just subtle ways of changing one's relation to the breath whereas and the breath is just like this like really this this content this very focused continuity within the sit so I used to kind of yeah The first question that I would have would be, is, um, is it possible that there is something on the outside or the situation or the conditions in which you live that has some effect upon this? Or is this 100% a difference in the way that the mind thinks? I would I would say it's more the latter. It's more the mind things. I mean, sometimes because I sit, there's a lot of regularity with how I sit. It's in the mornings before I do anything else, and sometimes I'll do another sit in the evenings, not infrequently. But um, no, it's, it, it doesn't. So I feel like sometimes if I've got more things that I'm worried about, if there's like more on my mind then perhaps I'm less likely to find my, to find that kind of focused groove in the sits. So I'll, okay. but I'm not sure, so I don't know. All right, well, let's investigate both sides of that. Is it possibly external or is it more likely internal? And let's do the internal first because the external can be quite complicated and we need to look at that. <clears throat> With the internal, basically we can use the um, our understanding of Petita Samupada mm -hmm. in reference to this. And that uh, in a way of speaking, you're saying that in some cases that uh, that your your focus on an object is diffused. And that at other times, your focus on the object is more uh, uh, focused there. In other words, you're taking an object. An example in this would be that you're taking the breath 
as an object. Mm -hmm. All right, and that way is going to be more central. But mm -hmm. if you allow the mind to become still open, but more open. In fact, um, one of the ways that we can uh, use the language would be that when the mind is in hindrance, when it is spinning, when it is often to its own manufacturing and manufactured world, mm. that's, cl that's closed. Mm. And you, you can see people being closed-minded when they won't take anything on in on, from the inside. So basically what we're talking about is uh, how open or closed the mind is, mm. uh, relatively speaking. And that when the mind is closed, then it's completely in hindrance. And that when it starts to open up, we start to allow things from the outside world through our actual senses, other than the um, uh, the mind's sense door. Then mm -hmm. that's the kind of openness in the sense that we're open to hearing sounds. And if that's true, then later we may be even open to listening to someone else talk <laughs> especially when we're closed that means that we want to talk we want to own the thing we want we, it's, it's my turn to talk now you know um uh and that we can do that kind of closed-minded thinking while we're waiting for our turn to talk while somebody and then we're not listening to anything they have to say so actually a kind of openness then is to listen. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, in the way of listening, there are two ways of listening. There is focused listening. And then there is open listening. And an example of that would be in music, listening to one solo instrument which a lot of people do that's why singers are so popular is because people are following that and all of the other stuff that the band is doing is just accompaniment but then there's another way of listening to music in the sense of what a symphony orchestra is doing that is um a communication and a dialogue between a whole lot of different instruments that have different intonations and sounds, different uh, ranges and whatnot like that. And when they become in harmony, we can actually hear all of what's going on. All right, because we're listening closely and it's almost how marvelous it is, how much stuff is going on. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that an example would be of a violin concerto, and I would use the big four, the Brahms, the Mendelssohn, the uh, uh, Beethoven, and the Tchaikovsky. And especially with the Tchaikovsky, of listening to a really excellent um, uh, musician like Perlman, when he's doing, it's like, how can he do that stuff? <laughs> and the, not only that, but it is exactly the same thing as it was the last time I heard that piece of music 45 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, but this is the concerto uh, from Tchaikovsky. Now, the thing's about 40 minutes long, so we're talking about individual passages. And the intricacy 
and just how much is going on with just the violin itself. Because in fact, the way that the violin is not like a guitar, the guitar has flat strings, mm -hmm. but the, all of the uh, um, actual string instruments, the violin, viola, bass, and, and cello, they have a curved bridge. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, is that because the bridge is curved, the bow can hit two notes, and if they're good at it, they can do three notes at a time. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so this is the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, that really getting into it and focusing down on exactly what's happening. And guess what? The orchestra is doing all kinds of things behind that, and you don't even hear it. Mm -hmm. Because you're really, really focused on what he's doing. So this is an idea then of music that we can do that focusing in on. Uh, and and most people don't have either skill. They're just, you know, listening and it's pleasant and maybe the mind is wandering off and they're just having a nice old time in their own half world that's uh, half of the music. Mm. But then we can listen to the music and we can do it in great precision and detail and then we can do it in a huge expansive kind of way. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? If we can do that with music, we can do that with the breath also. Mm -hmm. And that one of the ways that we can do it with really expansive breath is that we start to bring in all of the senses mm. and that we begin to not focus on any of it to where with the uh, more focused kind, um, we're looking at just the body and the sensations of the body and the experience of the body with the breathing. But we can open and expand it. Now, there's a difference in, in, in fact, like I was talking about in, in sound. We do that with the eyes also kind of automatically. Mm -hmm. one, one way of looking is by a piercing gaze, intent, studying something, taking it as an object and, and pulling it in, uh, examination and investigation. And then the other kind of vision is completely open gazing. Mm -hmm. And that if you, for instance, if you've got a splinter in your finger and you're looking at that splinter and you're really looking at it in close detail, your worst enemies could sneak right up on you. You're not paying any attention to what's going around you. But if you're out gazing, uh, let us say, in the field and you see the woods over there and you're just gazing out at it, any enemy anywhere that moves, and you're going to catch it. Even a bird will fly and you'll catch it because we're not attached to anything. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very open gaze. All mm -hmm. right. Now, when that gets opened and more and more open, this is where we actually start receiving more and more input and do less and less processing. Mm -hmm. All right, so one kind of investigation has a whole lot of processing or perception built into it in the sense of taking in new information about that splinter, more information, digging around with it, and doing all of that kind of detail and uh, doing a full investigation with it like that. And the other one is, is just to let data come in. Mm -hmm. This takes a whole lot less perception because the perception we're doing with the digging of the finger 
also has to do with Sankara for um, a half a minute ago or 10 seconds ago of what it was like. Okay, so this is a whole lot of perception that, that we can understand then that we do a lot of perceiving when we're doing a detailed study or mm. when we're really, really focused in on it. Alright, that means that we're perceiving a lot. And I use the example then uh Perlman with his violin fingering. When to to get the enormity of how complicated what he is doing is and done in such an exquisite way takes a lot of perception. Hmm. That just being open to the orchestra and everything, you're going to miss a lot of those details. But here, perception is not quite so attached now to consciousness. Mm. That consciousness means we're bringing in and 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 bringing in. And perception means getting a little bit, mushing around with it, getting a little bit more in, mushing around with it some more, getting a little bit more and mushing around with it a little bit more to come up with the final result of the object. Mm. In this regard, then, just gazing doesn't come up much, with much result. There's not a lot of sa that we come up with when we're not doing a lot of processing. Mm. We're just letting input come in. I suppose most most people most of the time don't have the stability to stay in that open gazing without getting um without attaching to an object hmm. mm -hmm. so because what, we naturally do that we're naturally attached to objects but is there do you think there's like a uh the mind works in such a way that the that the the former the narrower focus enables you to kind of open up into that broader focus like is there a kind of progression say within a sit or within a you know a, someone's development of practice like if you kind of yeah what do you think about that it can happen uh by accident but now that we're talking about it in this regard that means that you can actually intentionally develop it in the sense of intentionally not taking an object. Mm. To intentionally, whenever you catch yourself with an object, drop it and move on. You mm. might move on from, uh, in let us say, that you're gazing and the eye stops on, on the, uh, the tree trunk. You can either then go back to just gazing with the eyes and move more, or you can actually change the sense organ into becoming aware of the chair mm. that you're sitting in, but you don't, and you feel it, and you know it directly, but you don't look at it. Mm. And in that sense, we're not talking about the chair, we're actually talking about the sitting mm. and the postures of the body. And so we keep moving from sense object, or excuse me, yeah, we could say it that way, from sense object to sense object, from sense organ to sense organ, and just keep moving and moving and moving and moving. And it's almost like rolling downhill that you become more open to whole bunches of stuff. Mm. And you really begin to see that you're actually living inside of a symphony, mm. that there is 
harmony and interrelationships all here that mm. we can take in from the senses. Mm. And so by taking in that, now we're getting into that gazing or that objectless place, which now means that the perception is very, very light, very slight. Mm. And it's a really the only perception we have here at this point is the perception of consciousness itself, and we're not dealing with any sankaras at all. Mm. It's basically then like spinning our wheels. Mm. Also relates to emptiness, doesn't it? Because you're not, <laughs> if you're not taking those objects and manufacturing them into solid entities, and you're engaging with that much more like fluid and open, un solidified into concepts um way of engaging with reality you're living in a much emptier place in a in a very positive way yeah okay what we're describing now in the practice of describing this of of the ability to intentionally just not take any objects and as soon as we catch an object we move on that's almost exactly the same practice by the way of catching a hindrance <laughs> and now we're saying any object that we take at all is going to be a hindrance to us being in this free-floating state well it's also very similar to what we we're talking about last week that letting go that that's kind of what i was describing that thing of um that started that conversation that process of just everything that comes as soon as it's there it's already being let go that that for me is what what opens things up into that which then brings into this conversation that we're having now of how to to develop that hmm. now here's the thing that's very interesting and that is when i'm talking about that perception gets very loose and is not just taking the information that comes in consciousness and then processing it, but rather just allows stuff to come in. This is actually very closely associated with the description of the, the developed fourth jhana. Mm. But here we're doing it in a different way and we're actually calling it, or in fact, the, the later literature scripture began to call this the vipassana jhana mm. because you can insight your way or through wisdom directly go into it rather than the the detail work that the four jhanas uh require uh in the more traditional or non-buddha's way of doing it mm. all right in other words now that we know the conditions for the fourth jhana what we do is is that we allow that to be our our development mm. so in the classical way we develop the first jhana which is what we generally do but then the buddha says that that's the path to enlightenment and that's in that particular uh uh statement is said many places but then they're always talking about the higher jhanas um in, in many other places in in a way of <clears throat> that okay folks you can either do it the hard way which means jhana one and then never mind what we're going to do with jhana one we're just going to go right into jhana two mm. 
care how long it takes. And then from Jhana 2, we're going to go in and, and make Jhana 3 happen, and then we're going to make Jhana 4 happen. Now, actually, what happens is, is that generally it's the first Jhana that takes the longest. And if we know what we're doing, we can do the second Jhana. But mm -hmm. a lot of students are floundering, and so they're spending a lot of time meditating without getting any of these states because they don't know what they are. But this other new way of doing it uh, is to directly go with not having any objects at all. And that you begin to understand that um, this, this term that's used for the fourth jhana of infinite space, mm -hmm. it's not the word infinite. That's a problem word. In fact, the Buddha had no concept of infinite. What, he, what the word was meaning was boundless because our skin, we think, has a solid boundary. But in fact, the skin is not a solid boundary, that we live in a, in a soup. I mean, it's like we're spaghetti sauce, and the best thing that we can think that we are is, is a, a sliver of garlic. <laughs> But we live in the soup, and that there, uh, the boundaries are uh, no longer distinct when we get into this um, uh, state of, of just letting go and letting go and let everything go. Now we're letting all the objects go. So in that respect, what we're doing is now, <clears throat> instead of focusing on the point of contact, which is the way that, that Buddha Dasa uh, uh, recommends there's these deeper ways and that is, is that instead of focusing on the point of contact with the salyatana which is a form of consciousness now we're going to focus on taking any mental object at all before it's perceived so we're going back to the earlier kind of consciousness the sense consciousness yes because the salyatana is after perception, it's after Nama Rupa, right? It's after the Nama Rupa, right. Yeah. So the Nama Rupa is a perception. That's what we're interfering with. We're now not no longer going with Nama Rupa. We're just doing Rupa, 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 a little bit more Rupa. <laughs> and really enjoying the fact that this Rupa's got really strange qualities to it. And we're doing less and less Nama, 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 which means mm -hmm. we're now, we're we're taking it as an object, we're owning it, we're perceiving it, we're mixing it with our grab bag of tricks, the, the past and Sankara, and coming up with a new product that is often not the original product. Mm -hmm. um, um, an easy example, here's one, you get an email and whatever the email contents are, you don't know who it came from, and so you're kind of just open to what the email says. But now you could recognize that maybe this email came from somebody that you really like, and you know that person, you've heard of them or uh, whatnot. And then now that you read the email, you've got a friendly attitude to it because you've got a friendly attitude towards a person from your past that you met. And then the other option is, is that you open this email and you find that it's from somebody that's just completely 
disregarded, disrespected. Nobody believes anything he says. He's quite a liar. He's a Donald Trump, in fact. Now we're going to read his email, and it's going to be read completely differently. Hmm. All right? So that means, then, that there are three different ways for people in the United States to read Donald Trump's email. Hmm. They can either just see it as it is, or they can love it because they're his, already his supporters, or they can hate it because they hate him. And those points or perceptions, then, uh, flavor that reading of that email. So we cannot read the actual email that came in. We read that email based upon our prior knowledge of the person who wrote it. That is clearly what we mean by Nama Rupa. Mm. That's it. That, that perception, we perceive things with colored glasses. And some mm -hmm. people have rose colored glasses. Most of us don't. Most of us have dark <laughs> soot covered glasses. We don't see things so well. We don't take them in so well uh, because of that filtration. So now that you're practicing this, now that you've started to, uh, to point at this, let it be a very pleasant experience of actually becoming that fish in the, in the sea mm. or becoming that grain of um, uh, garlic in the, um, in the spaghetti sauce. That we live in an ocean and we don't even realize it. That we live in an entire ocean, just experience what's happening right now. There's <laughs> just so much happening. Mm. All of a sudden, just like in the symphony orchestra, when you uh, uh, open yourself up to what the symphony is doing, it's so much is happening. There's a hundred people, all of them doing something at the same time. And that's nothing compared to what reality is doing right around us all mm -hmm. the time. But while we're taking an object, we miss 99% of everything. Mm. Well, I suppose we, to go back to that kind of, See the kind of sequential like if if we stay with an object and kind of like really calm clarity for a while that opening up is more likely to to happen sort of stably right like it's more likely to you're more likely to be able to actually like abide there for a while in that kind That's of... That's the... That would be the word that we would use. In the Pali, it would be the Vihara. We would abide here. This would become our home. Mm. It would seek seclusion so that we could be in that state. Mm. Very nice. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting, actually. You, when I started speaking, you asked that question at the beginning to, like, clarify... And actually, I think both uh, both were, are really relevant. What you what we've just been talking about is really relevant for what happens for like almost like a progression of, of what happens when uh, when there's focus at the beginning, and then just watching the the need for that focus fall away, and then being in that kind of like unsupported expansiveness. Exactly. Or let us say, um, the, but there's a unity in it, and yeah. in that unity, it has a self-sustaining quality to it. Yeah. Because, in fact, it has nurturement and nutriment from far away. 
a clear example of that is is that what would happen to the planet Earth if all of a sudden the sun went away? It just went dark, or it just disappeared, or, or we sped away into outer space. What would happen without all of that energy coming in from the sun? Okay, mm. so we can say that even at the local level, that it's not just the sunshine; it's the parade and the dance of the air and the water and the trees mm. and the wind and everything around that sunshine. That eventually, by the time it gets here, it's so broken down and diffused that so many hundreds of billions of things are attacking us, not attacking us in the sense that we know it. Mm-hmm. But bombarding us in the sense of where all of this sensory input is, and then in fact one of the ways of looking at it is is that for some young children, they become overwhelmed with this sensory input, mm-hmm. and that one of the um, uh, let us say coping mechanisms that we as humans do for all of this sensory input is to shut down and focus on one particular thing or a few particular things. That in fact, this seems to be something that's related to autism, Mm -hmm. is when the child just can't handle everything that's going on, and so they're trying to hide from it. Mm -hmm. That they can't answer mom's question because the the whole room is talking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's so much Mm -hmm. happening, and the kid cannot focus on anything. But that would be, um, in a way then, this would be good if, if it had some value. And with the kind of practice that we're having now of allowing us to go back to that state of mm-hmm. absolutely being overwhelmed with the reality of the moment. Mm-hmm. But now we're overwhelmed in a sense of joy and gratitude mm-hmm. and awe about what's happening. And in a way which develops wisdom, right? Because it, it lessens our attachment to the idea of us being a fixed, separate self. It, absolutely, yes. It does deepen wisdom a lot. Mm. Now, in the process of doing that, we also find out something else. And that is, remember in the first part of the talk, I said that there could be outside influences. Mm. Guess what? We've been talking about a whole bunch of outside influences now. <laughs> mm. And one of the things that I have noticed over the past several years sitting on this porch is something that I didn't quite know before. And that was is that I've studied meteorology, you know, you peddle with all kinds of science, and barometric pressure and having barometers and how they operate and, and, uh, um, uh, and all of that kind of stuff with the mercury, you know, the, it's very much like a thermometer. Mm-hmm. Except that gravity wants to pull it down, but if there's air pressure, it'll push it back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, the point is, is that um, we are subject to constant changes in air pressure, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's quite remarkable. And that what I mean by that is, is that uh, let us say. Um, when, when the sun is shining and it's bright and glorious, it heats things up. Mm-hmm. When things get hot, they go kind of pressurized. Mm-hmm. Okay, just like if you had a, an air pressure machine, the, put that air under pressure, it gets hot. 
Guess what? When you let the release valve off, it goes back cold again, just like gas coming out of a bottle and it almost freezes. Mm -hmm. Right? So that drop in pressure then is an escape or loss of energy. This is one of the reasons why people feel cold. But there's something else with the barometric pressure. And that is, is that when the pressure on the body is very high, it, it actually compresses the body. Mm. And when the barometric pressure is, uh, has gone down and is low and the pressure comes off, guess what? The actual human body for every one of us grows and expands. Mm. Not very much, but enough that you know it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I mean by that is, is that that's when we're completely open to all kinds of sensory input. Someone can tell things about barometric pressure, like, hey, it's going to rain in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Because the first thing that happens when the storm comes in, the reason it comes in is it's got some place to go. Where does it come in? It comes in. You know, like water goes downhill, well, it goes to the lowest pressure area, and if all of a sudden this, uh, the sun, because of a cloud comes by, it cools off, the pressure starts to rise, and, or starts to fall, and then all of the heat rises. Mm. Uh, um, sort of a positive feedback loop like that. Mm. Well... Now all of the water, uh, the uh, the cooler air that's over the water comes rushing in because uh, that's cooler, but the pressure is still the same, mm. not like it was. And that's very interesting because you can feel that. Mm. But we normally don't. We normally don't for one reason is is that we live in uh, indoors and we but it's in outdoors is when you can feel that sudden rush of. The te- uh, it's not the temperature. The temperature drops later. Mm. First, the barometric pressure is almost like it takes your breath away. Mm. Now, here's something very interesting. This is almost a joke, but it's a Navy joke, okay? And I got a lot of old Navy jokes. You cannot smoke in a submarine. Mm. Not that you may not smoke in a submarine. You can't smoke in a submarine. Do you know why? Why? The cigarettes will go out. The reason for it is that in a submarine, they don't have enough oxygen. That they take the oxygen level intentionally from about 20% down to about 16%, which is now not enough for a fire to start. Well, how do the humans survive then? The answer is that they pressurize it. They put it under a lot of pressure, so that makes it really easy to breathe. Mm. If you lower the pressure, then it would be harder to breathe. Mm. This is also a quality of the uh, barometric pressure. So this is also something that I invite you to do, is that now that you understand that all kinds of things are happening that we're not paying any attention to, Mm. this is something that you can also begin to pay attention to. Of what is the air pressure? How does it feel? Mm. What is the temperature around us? All of these things are constantly in motion and in flux, but this barometric pressure is something that is sudden, 
And to that old sauce, people who have been at sea, they know that feeling. That mm. in fact, it was like, okay, what happened? <laughs> let me go. Let me go look at the barometer. It looks like the storm may be heading, and I don't see a storm anywhere in sight. Mm. But we can. There's a feeling, and they say that they can feel it in the bones. Or it's actually this is something that's just quite known. Why do joints ache mm. when it's raining? Mm. The answer is, is when the barometric pressure is low, the the body grows. It gets bigger. And because of that, the muscles change and they don't support the ligaments the way that they did. And the joints begin to hurt. Mm. That's just so ridiculous, but mm. it's quite scientific. This is exactly what happens. And we can begin to become aware of that kind of experience just by not taking any objects at all. Mm. But if you're there looking at a YouTube and doing all of that, the air pressure can change completely and you won't know it. <laughs> mm. You can look up and say all of a sudden, it's raining, how did that happen? <laughs> Normally I'm gonna know 10 minutes before it rains. And well, so this- Interesting, something else to kind of open up to and try and be aware of. So that's actually then, uh, this is very much Paticca Samapada that we're talking about, except now, instead of being mindful at the point of the contact, when the Salyatana contacts the feelings, mm. now we're going to be at the earlier, putting our focus on not taking any objects at all. And what about the times when, because there are times when that, when that feels very available, and then there are times when that doesn't feel very available in sitting practice. The mind's got to be sharp. <laughs> yeah, yes, it does. So when it's not, when that, that level of like subtlety of sharpness, call it what you will, isn't there, and we are encountering the Salyatana in, you know, uh, in the form of like a memory here, a kind of quite perceptually interpreted feeling here, etc. Then we just, it's a fine line at that point, isn't it, between trying to kind of skillfully work with the mind to make it subtler and sharper, but also kind of accepting well, actually, this is just where the mind is today, and I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to be mindful of, of these types of contact in a not displeased way, right? Like that, that's quite a subtle line. Exactly so. Exactly so. This is discussed in the Satipatthana Sutta, mm -hmm. and it is also step nine of Anapanasati, and that is to experience this mind to know that it is sharp, or to know that it is dull. To mm. know what level of hindrances we can deal with in the moment. Mm. And that sometimes um, uh, the physical environment that we're in, like, like all of a sudden, like the, the U-Haul driver that wound up in a, uh, 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 a march. <laughs> all right. That sometimes the environment that we're in is... Um, so much world, so much Mara, so much Dukkha that the mind is just completely overwhelmed with what's happening 
in the in the world. Hmm. A noisy room, for instance. This is one of the reasons why we want to withdraw from situations like that and get into solitude. Hmm. So that now we only have to deal with the hindrances of the spinning mind or the talking mind. Mm. But then when we get the mind stopped to stop talking, now we start dealing with feelings. Mm. And we allow these feelings to become beautiful and huge and, uh, and expansive and uh, also very sensual. And this is where we come to the second jhana. Mm. Once the feelings, um, let us say, uh, they're big and they're gushy, but they're expansive rather than pushy. Mm. That rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, and so we, we learn to deal with these in the third jhana. And then when things get really expansive, where with the bound, when the body loses its boundary, mm. where we begin to take in all this stuff, which uh, uh, the consciousness now no longer is bound by and uh, strapped to perception, that we break this thing apart so the reception <clears throat> is very, very light. And when the perception is very light, that means that we're just taking in everything, mm. but not focusing on anything. Mm. All right. And then when it all becomes uh, input, that's indistinguishable. And then it becomes kind of nothing at all. When in fact, you could say that when consciousness and perception are completely separated, then there is no perception at all, so and nothing. so there's nothing to experience yeah. at all. <laughs> and so this is what is known as the state of nothingness, which is uh, a kind of sunyata, and that's because we have literally now um, broken the connection between uh, Vinaya and Namarupa. Mm. And we can do that without the harsh kind of long, long, long sitting meditations, you can just sit where you are out in the woods or um, and just out and just go gaga. Ga. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's when you're kind of using the, the jhana factors in a kind of slightly less systemized way. You're just allowing yourself to like access natural. the state. It yeah. becomes natural. Yeah. Rather developed but it look at all the development that we had to go through to get this natural <laughs> interesting um that's been a really interesting talk thank you all right well, let's finish this one now, leave it a little bit short, and um, we'll turn the video off and continue on with something else. So, Thank you, Damarato. We'll see you. <laughs>